How many of you are fans of the show, the game show Jeopardy? Let me see your hands. Any Jeopardy fans here? Yeah, a lot of you. It's a great show. I love to watch Jeopardy. We watch it regularly. And right now they're having, uh, on, uh, during prime time, they're having uh, Jeopardy Masters uh, game show going on. And this involves, I think it's uh, five or, or six of their top winners. So these Men and women are super sharp. Anybody who's on Jeopardy is really smart. But these are like the, the best of the best. Uh, the, the men and women who have won in the past, and so they're going to determine a, a master's champion. It's really interesting. And uh, so this week, we were watching it one night this week, and there was a question that was asked, or an answer rather. You know the game. They give you an answer. You have to ask a question. So there was an answer that was given. And, um, well, nobody got it. So let me show you this answer, and you tell me what the question is when you see it, okay? Just call it out. Let's, let's show it. This three-chapter section of the Gospels includes, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. What is... Anybody? So it's not the Beatitudes, but what is the Beatitudes a part of? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. So the, the, the question should have been, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Of course, when I saw that, I knew immediately before he even finished reading it. Uh, if you know the rules of the game, they can't answer. They can't answer until, they can't press a button until he's finished reading the, the question. So they're all, even if they know the answer, they're waiting until, to time it just right. So timing is part of it. But I thought about that because I thought these men and women are super smart and not. I mean, they're asking me questions that are like way beyond my understanding and, and history and science and all, you know, capitals. And oh, my gosh, they couldn't get this one. And it reminded me that uh, several years ago, uh, having a conversation with our friend Noe Reina, who is now with the Lord. He passed away a couple of years ago. And we were talking about Jeopardy. And he was very, very, very bright, very intelligent. And, uh, but we were having this conversation. Uh, I mentioned this to him. He says, you're right. You're right. I hadn't noticed that. He says, but most of these intelligent men and women, when it comes to Bible questions, occasionally they would have a category related to the Bible. They didn't know any Bible. It was really sad. Really sad because they're really wise, but they didn't know any Bible. And so all the three that were there, they just stood there. Nobody answered it. And then, you know, the buzzer and uh, the host says, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Like, oh, okay. Okay, let's go on to something more difficult like science. Uh, but I, I say that because uh, last month, uh, several weeks ago, we began a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically on the Beatitudes. And I told you that we're going to be, um, we're gonna be uh, learning the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, throughout really the rest of the year. And so we, our first three messages were about the Beatitudes, and then I told you we're going to take a break to cover a few other things. And I told you we'll be back on, on the third Sunday in May. So here we are coming back to our uh, series, uh, message, uh, series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, which is... Widely considered one of the most popular of Jesus' blocks of teachings, 
and yet one of the most difficult of his teachings to put into practice. So today we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5 with a message title titled, How to Influence the World Around Us, or more specifically, How to Be an Influential Christian. How to Be an Influential Christian. So today we come to a section of the Sermon of the Mount that tells us not how we are to interact with God or how we are to interact with other Christians, but rather how we are to interact with those that are outside the faith. So today our, uh, our focus shifts to our relationship with the world. And so we're going to begin reading Matthew 5, 13. Please follow in your Bibles. If, if you uh, use a Version Bible app, the notes will be there as well. And they'll be up on the screen as well. But here's what Matthew 5.13 says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So Jesus has been teaching uh, on the Beatitudes. We covered the Beatitudes in three sermons last time. And, and then he goes immediately to this as part of his teaching. You are the salt of the earth. Now, when we read the Beatitudes, some people might think that and studying the Beatitudes and reading and understanding what Jesus was saying, some people might think that he wanted his followers to separate themselves from society, to live, uh, you know, like, like monks, perhaps. But actually, Jesus here is saying quite the opposite. He wants Christians to be a positive influence in society. He wants Christians to bring about change in society. So if we understand the Beatitudes as describing the essential qualities of Jesus' followers, and that's, that's really one of the emphasis uh, that we uh, made during the three sermons on the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes are, are not prescriptive, like here's how you should live, but rather they're descriptive. Here's how you will live because you're a Christian. Not that we're forced to, but naturally as Christians, that's, that's what our, our attitude, our character should be. And so if we understand the Beatitudes as describing the, the essential qualities of Jesus' followers, then the metaphors of salt, and later we're going to talk about light, show how we can have a positive impact in the world. But if you remember the Beatitudes, you might wonder, how can people that are described in the Beatitudes by Jesus, how can those type of people make a difference in a, in a sinful world, in an evil world, in a, a, a tough and challenging world? For example, what good can a, a, the poor, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. What good can the poor do? What good can the humble those that mourn, those that grieve, those that are merciful, those that are peacemakers, what good can they do? I mean, won't they be overwhelmed by such an oppressive evil in our society? With their, their focus on righteousness and purity, Jesus was teaching us that his followers can really make a difference. They can achieve anything, even when they are a small minority in the world. So for those who say, well, what good does being good make? What, you know, th there's really um, an approach by some Christians that being winsome is not helping. That being 
being nice is not helping. Uh, being courteous to people, that doesn't help. So there have been some uh, well-known leaders, Christian leaders who write books, who write articles, and, and some of you might know their names if I were to call them, who are saying politically in our country, being good and nice is not working. It's not working anymore. We, we've, we've got to, you know, we've, we've got to match up with their anger and, and so forth. Jesus would disagree and Jesus would say, here are, the, here are the attitudes, here are the characteristics that you as my children display in, in, the, in the Beatitudes. And now he's saying with those characteristics, with that attitude, with that humility, with, you know, that uh, peacemaking uh, with all of that, you are going to make a difference. You are the salt of the earth. So the response of the Christian should be to offer love and to offer truth in return for hatred and lies. And it might sound unbelievable, but think about this. Jesus was teaching some very simple peasants, very simple peasants, and saying to them, you are the salt of the earth. I can almost imagine them looking at each other and saying, us? I mean, they were peasants. They weren't rich people. They weren't the, the, the powerful people in the land. But he says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. And he's telling them, you are going to have a high-reaching impact on the world around you. Now, specifically, what does it mean when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth? Well, in those days, salt was often used uh, as a seasoning, but not so much a seasoning like we use it now as a seasoning. And Jesus did refer to salt being a seasoning, but for the most part, it was used as a preservative. And so Jesus, I think, is using this example to show that his disciples as a preservative in, in a world that is decaying, a world that is in decay and in darkness, when he talks about light, I think he's telling them that they should fight against corruption and they should help prevent moral decline in their world. So as we read, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. To lose its saltiness. To lose its saltiness, saltiness means to become defiled or to become worthless because it, been, it had been mixed with some impure substances. It's not about salt magically losing its flavor because it's really more about the preservative. Flavor some, but more about the preservative. And so it's about it becoming useless as a preservative due to contamination. And so... I'll say some more about that in, in a minute, but the, the, the comparisons of salt and, and light bring up these important questions about how do we engage in our culture? How do we engage in society? It means we don't separate ourselves completely or we don't avoid getting involved, but it, it, it means that our role isn't to control the worldly power structures. We shouldn't expect to make all the laws and all the values of this world align with Christian beliefs. That's not what Jesus is saying, but we should work, actively work as preservers and, and even irritants, uh, challenging the world to follow 
God's standards, whether they're encased in law or not. Uh, so as Christians, our role is to be like salt in the world. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I think we need to understand first the difference between the church as a whole and individual Christians. Uh, there are some people who over the years have believed that the church should always speak out against the culture through some formal declaration. Maybe at their meeting they pass a resolution saying this church stands against this sin or whatever it might be on in whatever worldly matter, economics, politics, international affairs. And they think that's how we act as salt. Well, that's fine. And any church organization is allowed to, to do that, to make some declaration as a church against some practice. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think we can say, okay, we've done, we've done our part to be salt. We declared it. We'd let everybody know we're against this. But I think that being the salt of the earth is more about what we do as individuals, what each of us do as individual Christians. It's about how we live our lives and, how, uh, and what kind of people we are in every situation. For example, has this ever happened to you? When a Christian joins a conversation where people are speaking inappropriately, their presence has an effect. Has that ever happened to you when you come up and your coworkers are, speak, are speaking inappropriately and they see you and they stop? Because your presence already there, your presence there is already having an effect. They don't need to, you don't need to say anything, but sometimes others begin to even change their language around you and hopefully maybe even when they're not around you because the influence of a Christian acts as salt, which controls a tendency toward corruption, controls a tendency toward pollution, toward decaying. By simply being a Christian and living with good character and good behavior, Christians can already make a positive impact and begin, begin to combat the evil around them. And so they do this at home, they do this at their jobs, they do this in the marketplace, anywhere uh, that they are. You know, and you know, God has, has put certain things in place to keep society in check. God has arranged our culture with institutions like government, which makes laws and enforces laws. And, and the family, the family is a very important institution in, in culture that God himself established. They help to maintain order and stability within the community. These are very important and God has put them in place. But I believe that God's plan for the most powerful influence within a sinful society comes from his own people, his redeemed people, his righteous people. And that's what we're called to be. But as we uh, read and as I mentioned earlier, the effectiveness of salt depends on it remaining salty. Now, technically, I was reading yesterday that technically salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride, the chemical compound in salt, is very stable and it's very hard to break down. How many of you remember that from high school? <laughs> it's very stable. It's very hard to break down. So salt never really loses its saltiness except when it becomes contaminated with 
uh, with impurities. When it becomes mixed with impurities, impurities, then it becomes useless and even dangerous. So salt has lost its saltiness. Jesus said it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now back in, in Bible times, salt might have been a powdery substance that had sodium chloride. But, you know, back then they didn't have the refining processes we have now. So the sodium chloride would dissolve easily and leave behind just a residue. It's just a dust that was thrown out and trampled underfoot. So in the same way, I think what Jesus is telling us is that a Christian's influence is tied to their character, is tied to their uh, discipleship. Here's what Jesus said in Mark 9.50. Mark 9.50. Now, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. He said, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Then he says, you must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves. He's saying that a Christian's saltiness is their character, their Christian character, as described in the Beatitudes and their commitment to following Jesus in both their actions and their words. That's their saltiness. So to be effective, a Christian needs to maintain their Christ-likeness. Just like salt needs to retain its saltiness. You're going to find yourself... In, in situations, those of you that are going to college and, and, and all of us know as adults and, and every situation, uh, you're going to find yourself in, in situations where you're tempted. You're tempted to allow yourself to get contaminated by the impurities in the world. But when you do that, you lose your ability to be a positive Christian influence on those people. The influence that Christians have in society depends on them being different, not like everybody else. And so we can't lose our saltiness. We can't lose our character. We can't lose our Christian attitudes, even though we're surrounded by a world in decay and darkness. And then secondly, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Look at Matthew 5, 14. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light, excuse me, it gives light to everyone in the house. So in addition to comparing his followers to salt, he also compares them to light. You are the light of the world. There's a lot of implications behind this. One is that the world is in darkness. Secular society likes to talk about being enlightened, enlightened by education, enlightened by technological advancements, and enlightened by medical science. But this advanced knowledge has done nothing, has done nothing to minimize the spiritual darkness in this world. We went through a a period in history in our nation that is even known as the Enlightenment, but the darkness continues and becomes even worse. If anything, this advanced knowledge is added to the darkness because it's unable to address the most pressing and fundamental, fundamental issues in this life. 
And so you are the light of the world tells us the world is in darkness. Another implication here is that Christians are the only ones that hold the answer to the sin problem that causes this world to be in darkness. Now, I know that that sounds like hubris, pride, arrogance. We're the only ones. And uh, certainly if if we don't uh, believe this uh, humbly or practice it humbly, we can come across in very annoying uh, fashion to other people. But the reality is that Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That's a very emphatic use of of that word. He said, you are the light of the world. But how is that possible? How is that possible that, again, we are the salt of the earth to prevent the the decaying and contamination uh, of society? At the same time, we are the light of the world that is in darkness, what Jesus was saying here simply is that ordinary Christian, ordinary Christians like us, even if uh, these ordinary Christians are, uh, Christians are not formally educated with multiple degrees in, in philosophy or any other uh, of kind of advanced degree, ordinary Christians have a better understanding of life than the greatest non-Christian experts. That idea is actually an important theme in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians that, and he said that in the world, or that the world, rather, with, with all its wisdom, the world cannot know God. They couldn't know God with all their wisdom. And so God chose to save those who believe through what seems foolishness to the world. And that is a preaching uh, of the word. He, he chose to save the world through the fullness of preaching, because the world with all its advanced knowledge could not know God. And so the implication again is, is clear. We're called, to, we're called to influence the world with the Lord's teaching, with God's teaching. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we need to remember that Jesus calls us the light of the world, but he also called himself the light of the world. So which is it? He said, I am the light of the world. Then he also said, you are the light of the world. Well, which is it? Well, I think we need to remember that we are simply to reflect light, the light of Jesus, because he is the light of the world. We're not the light of the world to the same extent or level that he is. Obviously, we know that. So he's the light of the world. And the reason we're the light of our world, our circle of influence, the world that we live in, is because we reflect his light. Just like the moon doesn't reflect its own light, but the moon reflects the light of the sun, we have no light of our own. We're the light of the world because we reflect Christ. He's the light of the world. We're the light of our world. That we, you know, our circle of influence, that world that we have connections with. And so in Matthew 5, 16, continuing here, uh, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we're learning here that, that Jesus refers uh, uh, to, uh, or rather Jesus says that this light refers to 
our good works. When people see our good works, they will glorify God, our Heavenly Father. So our light shines through the, the things, the good things we do, and the good things we say as Christians. It includes our actions, our words, everything about our lives. Now, in the Bible, light represents truth. And so since light represents truth, then our shining the light also includes us sharing our beliefs with others. You know, we, we, I spoke about how we live our lives, our words, our actions, uh, well, glorify God. We'll draw attention uh, to God. And sometimes people are uncomfortable around us. Uh, we've been in settings. My wife and I, one time we showed up to a family uh, celebration. Uh, they, you know, they were um, from out of town, family from out of town. So uh, we, we showed up and when we walked into the, their house, there was some awkwardness there. Okay. You know, we know each other. We long time. Uh, I, I've known them since I got married, married into my wife's family, you know, but uh, they, I guess later on we discovered, well, they had been drinking and then we, we told them we're coming over. So they all put their, their beers away because we were coming over. You know, it's like, OK, you know, and sometimes we make people uncomfortable and just by showing up because there's something, you know, that uh, about our character. We're not preaching. But my point is that at the same time, uh, shining our light also means that sometimes we have to share our faith clearly and explicitly. I have shared this story with you before, but um, I remember many years ago reading the story of, of Bill Bright, who was a founder of campus, what was back then Campus Crusades for Christ. And a uh, very you know, godly man, good, good Christian man. But he, he tells a story here. One time he, he, was, at, uh, he was working and he felt that he wanted to he wanted to reach one of his co-workers for Christ. He wanted to talk to him, but he, he didn't really want to talk to him. He just wanted his co-worker to ask him. He didn't want to initiate anything. He wanted his co-worker to ask him. So he thought, I'm just going to I'm going to live my life. And he was started praying, Lord, uh, have my friend, and I forget his friend's name, have my friend notice that I'm a Christian. Have him ask me, why are you different? That was what he was asking God. And so every day he'd go to work and he interacted with his co-worker and he kept hoping uh, maybe one of these days he'll ask me why I'm this way. You know, He didn't want to initiate anything. So finally one day he did go to work and, and his friend said, hey, uh, Bill, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I've noticed something about you. And Bill Bright got real excited. Yes, Lord, this is it. This is what I've been asking for. He says, yeah, I want to ask you. I've noticed some, some things about you. You're, you're, little, you're different than other people on here. Yes, God, this is exactly what I was asking. Thank you, Lord. He says, so I want to ask you a question, Bill. Uh, my question is, are you a vegetarian? <laughs> well, that's not what he was hoping he would ask. But he was, and Bill Bright told this story to, to say, you know, sometimes we just have to speak out. We have to look for the opportunities that God gives us because they may know something's different, but they may not understand exactly why. So uh, light represents truth. So shine, a shining light includes sharing our, our beliefs, the truth of God with other people. Now, just like with salt, though, there's a condition attached to 
the affirmation about light. There's a condition attached to you are the light of the world. Right? Um, with the salt, the condition was that we, the salt can't lose its saltiness by getting mixed with impurities. And when Jesus said, let your light shine before uh, man, he's telling us that the, the light within us can't become darkness and can stop shining. We should let the light of Christ within us shine outwardly, visibly for others to see. It's got to be visible. We shouldn't, we, we shouldn't hide our light like a village hidden in a valley. Instead, we should be like a city on a hill, he says, with the lights that can be seen from miles and miles away. We should be like a, a lamp that's lit and placed in a prominent position in a house that provides light for everybody. We need to let our light shine. We shouldn't try to cover it up because that's not what we're called to do. We shouldn't hide our Christianity. We shouldn't pretend that we're not Christians. We, we should openly live out our Christianity following the teachings of the Beatitudes, not being ashamed of Christ. Openly, explicitly, and when people see us and our good works, they will give glory to God, Jesus said. They will recognize that it's God's grace that makes us who we are and that our light comes from Him. So let me give you two closing points today. Two closing points. First of all, there's a very important fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. It's a fundamental difference. It's, there's, there's a difference in its core. Not just a, a difference in, in, in the outward appearance, but a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. Yes, it's true that there are some Christians, or I should say there are some people that are not Christians, but they know how to follow all the Christian cultural rules and customs and traditions. So they haven't really surrendered their life to Christ, but they know how to act like a Christian. And I... I refer to them as cultural Christian. On the other hand, though, there are also some people who claim to be Christians, but they act in, in ways that are similar to non-Christians. There's no distinction. And that contradicts their Christian identity. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I gave my life to the Lord. But in the way they live their lives, they're very similar to people who, who, who are not Christians, who don't follow Christ and don't pretend to follow Christ. So the fundamental distinction, though, between Christians and non-Christians still exists. Another story, and I'm sorry that today I'm repeating some stories that I've told you in the past, but I think this, this fits uh, really well right here. Another thing that I remember hearing several years ago, a few years ago at, at Cornerstone Christian School, it was a chapel service, and one of the local youth pastors was, was speaking that day and uh, it was in May it might have even been the last chapel service of the year because I remember he was speaking specifically to the seniors who were about to graduate and go on to college and he, he spoke about how they would soon be in college and then he, he said this he said when you go to college you may realize that you don't fit in with a lot of your new friends that aren't Christians you may you may realize there may be some awkwardness because you don't fit in and he said, the truth is, you're not supposed to fit in. Sometimes we try really hard to fit in when 
We're different. There's a fundamental difference in, in our lives and in our beliefs, the core of who we are. And I just thought, now all that I added, he didn't say all that. He just said, you're not supposed to fit in. But I think it's great advice. Uh, you can and you should have friends that are uh, non-Christians. But just remember, there's a fundamental difference between you and them. Don't try to blur that distinction. And that also means uh, that you don't consider yourself better than them and act, you know, be annoying with them like a know-it-all, like a, uh, you know, holier than thou, because that doesn't reflect God's heart and that doesn't glorify him. And then finally, just another closing point is that we must accept the responsibility that comes with this distinction. There's a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians, and that difference with that difference comes a responsibility. With that distinction comes a responsibility. And we must accept that responsibility. Each one of these statements, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. That word you in the Greek means you and only you. You and only you are the salt of the earth. You and only you are the light of the world. So it follows logically that we cannot let down the world that we're supposed to be helping, that we're supposed to be influencing. We have to be true to what God called us to do. So your salt, you should keep your unique Christian flavor. Don't lose it. Don't let it become contaminated because then you can't serve as a preservative. You are light, so let your light shine. Don't try to hide it in any way whether by doing wrong things or by making compromises, by being spiritually lazy or by being afraid to speak out. Don't try to hide your light because this world needs your salt and it needs your light. The world around you, your circle of influence specifically needs you. Your friends need you and your family needs you. God has placed you where you are at this moment. At this moment in time, He has placed you for this specific reason, to be salt and to be light. Two weeks ago, Mario Escovedo preached a powerful message that I don't want us to forget. I don't want us to forget that. People are hurting and in torment, and oftentimes they don't even know why. We know why, generally we know why, because it's a sin problem. You are the salt of the earth for people in torment. You are the light of the world. So my question today is, will you embrace it? Will you embrace it? Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the teachings that we have in the Bible, how powerful they are to us when we, when we open your word and when we study it, when we read it and let it speak to us. You have called us uh, and you have placed us in this situation where we are now for this very specific reason to be salt and light to the people around us. These young people that are graduating high school and about to move on to another stage in their life. Lord, you, you want them to be salt and light in their new situation, wherever it might be. And every one of us today, 
Very simply, sometimes it's our own families that need us to be salt and light. Help us to embrace that. Our world needs you. And Lord, one thing we know is that if you say that we are salt and we are light, that we know that we can step out into this world with confidence, confidence in you, confidence in what you've called us to do. Help us, Father, to be true to your word and to be true to our calling, to be true to who we are. We pray it in Jesus' name.